our journey with uh, Apostle Paul in this Second uh, Corinthians, a more heartfelt letter than than First Corinthians. And in, in this particular section where we find ourselves, just so we remember, the, there were other apostles, what, what uh, the Apostle Paul calls the most eminent apostles. Now, probably not referring to the twelve, probably who he's referring to is guys who came after him. Remember, Paul said uh, to the Ephesians, when I leave, savage wolves will come, not sparing the flock. They were going to come and, and bring in all these false teachings. And their ideals, these, these false apostles, their ideals were all about what they can do to, to make a buck. Now, we still have those folks with us today, right? I mean, hopefully you can recognize those guys that are only in it Maybe they're following what uh, Scripture declares as the, the way of Balaam or the error of Balaam. They're looking for what they can do in ministry for profit. And that was the attitude of these guys. Now when they came, they had these big long recommendation letters from all these other places that said how great they are. And they had all these letters from, from different trainers and rabbis and people who had raised them up to say how wonderful they were. And then they would say to the church as they came in, hey... You know, Paul, I understand Paul founded this church and, and he's been here, but, you know, he don't have these kind of letters. And, you know, have you ever seen that guy? He kind of looks like Marty Feldman. He's not that impressive of a, of a character, you know. So we, we've come to bring you a, a greater word than even what Paul brought. And then they would begin to teach a legalistic gospel. Remember Paul told us last week, if anyone comes teaching any other gospel than what you've received from us, let him be anathema, accursed. Let him be accursed. Any gospel apart from what gospel? The gospel laid out for us in the Bible. Anything other than that brings us into a place where we can experience error. And that error can bring us to a place like Corinth where they're following these other teachers and they've got themselves off track by following these false guys, and now when Paul writes to them, they're asking Paul, well, Paul, wh where are your letters? Paul, what's your recommendations? Where's all, where's all your degrees, Paul? Wh what's going on with you? And Paul would tell them, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the love of Christ would be clearly seen in my life, in what I do. And so in chapter 12, we find Paul in this place. Now, what Paul said last week was, hey, more, maybe you should ask, what are they willing to suffer for Jesus Christ? Because last week, Paul declared his credentials. They'd been beaten with rods, and he'd been 30, uh, received 39 lashes from the Jews, that he'd been stoned and left for dead, all these troubles that he had. Yet he said, here I am, I'm still serving, I'm still loving the Lord. It's not about what I get, it's about what I can give. And in chapter 12, he's going to continue that concept. He's going to continue that thought. In fact, he says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Now, if we, if we delve into the Greek a little bit in that phrase, it makes a little more sense. In the Greek, it, it literally says, it's necessary, though not profitable, for me to boast. He's saying, look, you guys are, are wanting credentials. Let me lay some credentials out for you. Let me talk to you about what's going on in, in my life. So he says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And he lays out these two concepts, visions and revelation. What's the difference? Well, visions deal with that which we see. Revelation deals with that which we perceive. 
maybe at one time or another in your life, in your walk with the Lord, you felt something impressed upon your heart. You didn't necessarily see the Lord, but you perceive God's direction. That would be a revelation. A vision would be when you saw a a, a vision, something that you literally saw with your eyes. So Paul's going to begin to talk about these. He says, okay, while we're talking about credentials, while we're talking about some of these issues, let's talk about visions and revelation. Now, if we do a little back study on Paul, here's what we find out. Paul experienced a lot of visions and revelation. When we look at Paul's life, we see that when Paul was converted, how was he converted? Now, myself, I was converted in a church, a message of the gospel pierced my heart. I found myself broken before the Lord, and I asked him to be Lord and Savior in my life. Paul saw Jesus. Paul on the Damascus road saw this bright light. And a voice speaking to him from that light, from that glory, from the Shekinah of God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When Saul was called to repentance, he was called by God himself. That's quite a vision, isn't it? Coming face to face With Almighty God, he sees the glorified Christ on the days converted. We also see that he was blind after that, and he had a vision of a man coming to heal him. That man's name was Ananias. In fact, the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 9, verse 12, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand upon him so that he might receive his sight. So we see in in Paul's life already the way that he was converted and some of the experience that he's having right out the gate are in a lot of ways different from from many other people. Oh, there's something special about Paul. He's going to go on to write 13 of the books in the New Testament. God has a very specific call in his life. He goes on and says he has a vision from the Lord when he's called to go to the Gentiles. In fact, in Acts 22, verse 17, it lays this call out for us. He says, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I am imprisoned and beat for the... uh, for those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing there by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So another vision Paul has given directly to him. Hey, you're going to go to the Gentiles. So he sees the risen Christ. He gets saved. While he's blind, he sees a vision of a man coming to heal him. Ananias comes and heals him. As he begins to minister in Jerusalem, the Lord says, No, this is not the place. He again sees a vision of the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Hey, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I'm sending you far away from here. These people are not going to receive the message that you have. Then we see as Paul goes on in, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 16... Verse 9, he has a vision of the Lord sending him to Macedonia. In Acts uh, 16, 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him and said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So here these other guys get the mindset. What is it that Paul's boasting in? He's boasting in how the Lord has revealed himself to him in his life. Not because he wants to boast, but he wants the people to recognize the difference between the real and the false. The real disciple, the real apostle, the real message is going to be founded in God's Word. It's going to be seen in God's Word. It's going to be evidenced in God's Word. And anything outside of that is false. And who cares how many diplomas you can put up on your wall? Does that mean that the Spirit of the living God is working in your life? It doesn't mean anything. It means you have the commendation of man. But who should we be more concerned with? The commendation of the Lord, right? The call of God. The church of Corinth was more interested in the commendation or the recommendation of men than they were in the fact that God himself had sent Paul. And so they were, they were resistant to his message of the truth and receiving all these false messages from whoever would come with the fancier looking letters or with the, the greater recommendation from these men or this place. Listen, Paul has already told us that the battle we find ourselves in is a spiritual battle. How do we win the spiritual battle? Not by carnal weapons, but by spiritual weapons. Not by man's ability, but by God's ability to work through us. Has anybody here ever felt inadequate to do something for the Lord? Good, you're perfect. Look at that, we got a whole church of people ready to serve. Because we need to feel inadequate to do for the Lord. We need to realize that what we offer is an empty vessel, in essence, to, to surrender ourselves to God and ask God to work through us, to work in us. And so Paul says, hey, we'll come to visions and revelation. We'll come to the Lord speaking to Paul and guiding Paul and directing him in so many different ways. He goes on to say then uh, after his arrest in Jerusalem, Paul gets encouragement from a vision from the Lord. In fact, in Acts 23, it says, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you also will bear witness to me at Rome. So Paul's encouraged by a vision. What's the important thing that Paul needs to understand and that we have to grasp as we face some of the same things that Paul's going through, as we'll see as we go through this chapter? We need to grasp that it is important to know that I know that I know that I'm doing what God's called me to do. I'm where God wants me to be. As soon as that's not true anymore, as soon as I'm not sure if this is where God wants me to be, or I'm not sure if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then we look at our surroundings totally differently. But Paul, knowing, hearing from the Lord, you're doing what I've called you to do, even though it's hard, even though you're in prison, you're doing what I've called you to do, and you will continue to go forward and bear witness before Caesar. Paul's going to share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world in his day. The man who has the power of life or death for him. But he doesn't have to worry about what he's going to say. Why? 
because he realizes that the weapons of his warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That the Holy Spirit will speak through you and give you utterance. That all Paul has to do is present himself to the Lord and say, Here I am, use me. Whatever situation you find yourself in, and God will honor it. The Lord will use you. God will speak through you. Even as we see God speaking through Paul. We see another time, Paul's on a ship, on his way in prison still. The ship hits a storm and he's shipwrecked. And he has a vision of an angel standing on the ship saying, As long as everyone stays with the ship, no one will be lost. Now you can imagine as the ship begins to bust apart, sailors are starting to let down the, the, the lifeboats and get in, get ready to get away from the ship. And Paul comes running to him and says, No, no, listen, I've seen a vision of an angel, and the angel told me, Stay with the ship, and you're not going to be lost. But isn't that similar to the message that God has us give in the gospel of Jesus Christ? The world is a shipwreck, and everything is falling apart. And people are looking for all kind of different ways to, to find their safety. So the humanist movement would say, There is no God, we must save ourselves, let down the life raft. But Paul, we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, should be crying out, Nos, the salvation is with the Lord. In what God's Word has told us. What the angel told Paul, what Jesus Christ has told us. Salvation is found in the pages of Scripture as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that foundation of truth is going to carry us through. And then finally we see Paul receive a special revelation concerning the mystery of the church. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3, he says that the Lord revealed unto him the mystery of the church. That Jews and Gentiles would come together in one entity. And that one entity, the church, would have a relationship with Almighty God. Special revelation, special vision, the hand of God working in his life. This is what Paul points to. These are my commendations. This is the call of God in my life. We'll come to, to visions and revelations of the Lord. Verse 2, he says, Now I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. In the third heaven, the rabbis taught three heavens. The, the heaven, the atmosphere we breathe, the, the atmosphere where the stars are, and the third heaven, which is the, the place where God dwells. So when Paul says I, he was caught up, this man caught up into the third heaven, he's talking about that in the very presence of God. And very interesting that the word that's used here for caught up is a word harpazo, which means this person that Paul's talking about, uh, which we're going to see he refers to himself later on, that this experience he had, he was caught up, raptured to the presence of God, seeing the Lord, and then he goes on to explain the experience to us of what took place. He says, And I know such a man, whether in the body or, or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words 
which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So he's, he's brought up into the presence of God. God speaks with him. God shares something with him. He hears something. But God says, don't say anything. And then he comes back. Fourteen years ago, that was Paul's experience. And we never heard about it for 14 years. The only time he brings it up is simply to bring up this point that his boast is in what the Lord God has done, not in what he has done, not in what other men can say about him. Sometimes, folks, we'll get all caught up in in serving, plugging ourselves into service at the church, and we want to be involved and we want to help out, but pretty soon we're not receiving the, the commendation of man. We get burnt out and we stop serving. And the problem is, our heart was wrong from the get-go. Who are we serving for? Am I serving for the Lord? Or am I serving to receive the commendation of men? Do I want men to say, wow, he did a great job, or you're wonderful, or, or to be thankful? I'm not saying those things are wrong. But if that's our motivation, our heart's not right. Our motivation, just as our motivation is with our offering, just as our motivation is with our prayers, is to honor the Lord with our life. To honor God in what we do, in how we serve. To lay those things before Him. And that's what Paul wants us to see. Honoring the Lord. Looking to Him. Looking at what God had done in His life. That he was caught up to the place of God. And what's amazing is, you can probably go down to Barnes and Noble today and find a hundred books by a hundred people who died and saw God and want to tell you all about it. They want to tell you what they saw, what it was like. Usually the message goes something like this. God said to me, he's known by many different names. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Allah. Some people uh, uh, call him any number of different things. But God wants us to know that we're all one big happy family and we're all going to be okay with him. Now, when I hear that message from those books, there's something I know right out of the gate. It is in direct opposition to God's word. So for that to be true, God's word has to be false. Now, which one are you going to trust? Word of God, surviving uniquely throughout history, or someone's book on a light that they were embraced by when they died and, and went where they think was heaven, at least, and received this message. But what does the Bible tell us about a message like that? Does the Bible say just because you go to the light that that which is in the light always gives you the right message? He just told us last chapter that Satan himself can present himself as an angel of light. An angel of light. How many cults and isms start based on someone's faith and trust in an angel of light that is in direct contradiction to what God's word says? God's word is that foundation of truth for us to say, look, if it doesn't say it here, it didn't happen. It's not real. It's false. And I'm putting my hope and faith in the commendation of men and what men say about their experience rather than what God says about it. That got the church in Corinth off track. And unless we guard ourselves, especially in these last days, we're going to see the same thing happen within the church. 
Why will we say the same thing? Folks, we see it today. We see it today. Church after church after church taking the word of God and saying, you know, this is an old document. It doesn't really fit in the 21st century. It doesn't really apply to us anymore today. The truth that is found therein is open to interpretation and it doesn't mean what it says. And one by one by one, these churches are closing up this book and turning to a bunch of programs that are going to lead them to, to growth, to have a big church as everybody's desire. It needs to be big. Who cares how big a church is? Is the church feeding God's people? Are they being given the meal that Jesus said we needed? What was that meal that we must drink of his blood and eat of his flesh? The flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the word of God. That the word of God is ingested into our lives and becomes a part of us. Not just something we look at, not just something we think about, but something that becomes a part of our life. This is where Paul is trying to point the church at Corinth. Guys, you're following all these other teachings. What is it that Paul would later on say? He said, the day will come when men will not put up with the word of God, but they will pile up for themselves teachers to tickle their itching ears. Teachers that are funnier. Teachers that are more entertaining. Teachers that maybe utilize multimedia better than others or have all this stuff going on. The point is, is the word of God being given out and is it being received and are you getting a a diet of the truth of god's word that's what paul's trying to help these guys to understand and he wants them to understand something because of all this stuff that happened in his life because of all these visions because of all this revelation his life was not just a bowl of cherries It's not a feel-good religion. It's not a deal where, you know, if I give my life to Jesus Christ and I trust in Him, everything in my life is just going to be hunky-dory from here on out. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I remember when I was just coming back to the Lord after about 13 years of rebellion, there was a thing I would always say. Every time something went wrong, I would say, God hates me. If something went wrong, God hates me. Oh, I get a flat tire. Yeah, God hates me. All day long, everywhere I went, there was all this stuff. God hates me. Because if God really loved me, then my life would just all fall together perfectly. But the opposite is true. God loves me so much that he's not willing to leave me the way I am. And he's going to allow things in my life to affect change in my life. And those things affect change. Because we learn obedience by the things that we suffer. That's how it works. We don't have to be afraid of it. Because the God who's working in our life, He has one goal. To give us a future and a hope. His one goal is to perfect us. God is not punishing us. He's perfecting us. He's doing an amazing work in our life. Well, listen, in in verse 5, Paul says, Listen, of of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities, in my weakness. It's not about where I think I'm strong, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not how strong I am. It's how good I can present or, or give myself to the Lord. 
And then he says in verse 6, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears of me. Listen, he's saying, I don't want anybody to put me on a pedestal. I don't want to talk about all these things that's going on in my life because I don't want people to think that there's something special about me. That was the polar opposite of the other guys. Come on, you guys have all seen them. They're having a, a crusade. They're having something going on. What is the picture on the billboard? Their smiling face. Who are you promoting? You're not promoting Jesus Christ. You're promoting yourself. And he says, listen, I don't want people to exalt me above measure. I don't want people to, to think that I have somehow something great because I'm not. I'm just a vessel in the hands of the master. And when the master's hands are upon your life, man, there is nothing that you can do that's going to disrupt God's work that he's wrought within you. The scripture lays out for us that we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that the Father has appointed for us. But God has a plan, a design for our life, a work that he's working. We just trust. Put our faith in him. I don't want to boast I don't want to be exalted. I don't want to be put up on a pedestal. I don't want to be put up on the billboard. That's what Paul's saying. All these other guys, they wanted to exalt themselves. Who does Paul want to exalt? Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. If Jackie's lifted up, nothing will happen. If Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. It's got to be all about Him. The things we do. You know, I can work a job my whole life and be that picture-perfect employee, but the reason that I work that job has got to be to lift Jesus up. Does that mean i got to disobey my boss when he says no more preaching in the lunchroom? No. I can obey my boss and not be a, a pain in the neck employer, somebody that's chasing people around that are running with their Bible. I can be a good witness of Jesus Christ in a a work environment and have nobody complain about me once. Because I made it about Jesus and not about me. As soon as my motivation is me, as soon as I think I need to do this or I should be doing more, who has become important? It's not the Lord anymore. I worked a job in, in Sodom and Gomorrah in the city of Palm Springs. I worked for the, the, the city of Palm Springs. I had to actually uh, close streets for the white party. I won't, I won't even begin to explain that to you guys. But the point is, I went there as a believer. And every time we'd sit down or have lunch or I had an opportunity when it was my time, I pulled out a Bible and I read it. You know what happened? Nobody wanted to hang out. They all went someplace else. They all felt guilty when they started talking about the parties and the things that they were doing or, or that they were cheating on their wife or cheating on their girlfriend or doing all this craziness. They felt guilty around me, so they went someplace else, which was fine. Then I could read in peace. So I read my Bible at lunchtime, but one by one by one, every single guy on the crew would come to me when life was upside down and say, will you pray for me? And what did they know? 
They knew I knew Jesus, and they wanted his help. They didn't want my help. They wanted Jesus' help. When the disciples were out doing the work for Jesus, Jesus had sent the disciples out, and they were healing, and they were casting out demons. They were doing all these great things. But they come across this one that they couldn't do anything with. And in what they did for him, they teach us all a lesson. What did they do with him? They brought him to Jesus. It's not about me or what I can do or what gifts I have or what talents God's given me. It's am I bringing people to Jesus? Am I showing them Jesus? Because Jesus is what affects change in our life. The grace of God is what's going to enable us to become more than what we are. But they're only going to find the grace of God in a relationship with Him. We've got to bring them to Jesus. We've got to go to Him. Paul says, I don't, want, I don't need to be on a, on a pedestal. Jesus needs to be on a pedestal. He needs to be lifted up. And then in verse 7 he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. What? What just happened? Paul has all these revelations, all these visions, doing all these great things for the Lord. But did you hear what Paul said? Lest I would be exalted above measure, or think that I am better than I really am, then a thorn in the flesh was what? given to me a thorn in the flesh was given paul looked at the thorn in his flesh as a gift anybody got a thorn in their flesh an issue going on in their life that just won't go away over and over and over again it rears its ugly head so did Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh. Something that, that would pester and, and bother him. The word scolop. Sometimes it's, it's uh, translated stake. But in the Septuagint, it's always translated a, a splinter or a thorn. Something that just pesters and bugs and won't go away. It won't give you rest. It festers up within you. And that's what we see going on with Paul. But he said this thorn in his flesh was a gift. A gift given to him. This was his attitude. This is a gift given by God working in my life. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. It's interesting to me when I look at this because I realize that God allowed the gift. Satan delivered it. God allowed the gift, but Satan delivered it. Just like with Job. You guys remember Job, right? Job, that righteous man following the Lord. <clears throat> Satan came to the Lord and, and the Lord said, What have you been doing, Satan? He's all oh, to and fro, going around the world here and there. And the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, but does he serve you for nothing? I mean, look, you bless him all the time. All this blessing on his life. If you, if you withheld that blessing, if you let me loose on him, he'll curse you to your face. So, the Lord let him loose. Now, we can sit back and think, man, this is a, like one of them weird stories you read in mythology where the gods are playing with the life of mortals. 
But what we don't understand is, through what Job suffered, God perfected him. God made Job more than he was before by the things that he went through. You guys know anybody in your life, you, you see someone who's gone through a, a terrible bout of suffering or, or, or illness or, or accident or sadness in their life, and if they will allow God, He will utilize that in their life to bring about greater good. That's what the Word says. The Word of God says, For we know, not we hope, not we think, for we know all things... Work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We know everything that comes into our life is for our good and God's glory. And that's what Paul understood. So he didn't look at it as a curse. He didn't look at it as God hates me. Look at this thing that's happening to me. He looked at it and said, man, this is a gift. This is a gift. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I would be exalted above measure. But then he goes on to tell us he's human. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Three separate occasions, Paul went to the Lord and he prayed. Paul would say, hey, make your supplication known unto the Lord. And he will do above and beyond what you can even imagine. Pray about it and prayer changes things. And so Paul prayed and he prayed three times and he still had the thorn." Thorn's still there. The problem didn't go away. Anybody relate to that? Anybody got a problem that just won't go away? Lord, I pray, God, I would like this to happen, but it doesn't happen that way. Lord, I want to see something change in my life. We pray, we pray, and we pray. We're hoping that God's going to deliver. And he said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough. My grace is enough for you. What's that mean? It means, Paul, if you'll press into me, within me, you will find the grace you need to overcome. You'll find the strength you need to stand. You'll find everything that is lacking in your life in me. My grace is sufficient. Because all our sufficiency, Paul wrote earlier in 2 Corinthians, is in the Lord. Everything we need, everything we're lacking, everything we're short of, guys, it's all there. It's all with Him. We can find it. We can come to know it because we press into the Lord and we trust Him. And we look at the circumstances we face and we realize, never underestimate the power of grace. Never underestimate the power of grace. It's a Christian movie coming out called The Grace Card. Maybe you've heard of the race card. This is different. This is the grace card. The story goes something like this. A a young uh, black preacher out on the preaching in church and also he he works a job and, and his family, they're struggling, going through a hard time. And his father meets with them one day and he says, listen, son, grab that old Bible for me over there. 
He goes over and he grabs this old Bible and he pulls the old Bible out and he gives it to his dad. His dad sits down and he sits down and says, Son, I want to tell you about this Bible. This Bible was your great-great-grandfather's Bible. 1883, he got this Bible. On the day that he got this Bible, the, the, the owner of the plantation on which your great-great-grandfather was a slave, the owner stood before all the slaves, he freed them that day, and he, and he gave them a Bible and he asked them all for forgiveness. He passed out that Bible and he gave each one of the guys that would stay and work on the plantation, ten acres each, their, their own start, uh, an opportunity to have a, a new beginning. And your great-great-great-grandfather was eight years old. And he wrote this note. This note said, I will pray for you always. And I have forgiven you and will ask for your forgiveness as well. I am your friend always, Wilbur Wright. From an eight-year-old slave boy to the master who set him free. And that one step of grace, what did it change? Did it take the scars off the backs? Did it take years and years of harsh treatment away? Did that all go away? Does it just cease to exist? Folks, I don't know that grace does much for the past, but I can tell you what grace does for the future. It changes everything. Everything. That eight-year-old boy became a preacher. His son became a preacher. His son became a preacher. And on down the line, the grace of God changed their life changed everything that they were ever going to be everything that they ever could be was all changed by the grace of god unmerited undeserved asked for by one given by another grace of god and while we were yet sinners christ died for me before i asked he bore upon his back the stripes that should have fell to me That grace, it changes it all. And if we don't understand grace, then you're not going to understand the difficult times you go through. You're not going to understand the hardship that you face. You're not going to understand all the ways that God's working in your life because you don't understand grace. Maybe you're holding on to a grudge. Maybe you're upset about how someone treated you or what someone else did. And in your mind, you're holding that grudge against another person. If you're doing that, you are not walking in grace. You can't. You can't have grace. You can't experience the freedom of the forgiveness of God Almighty and walk around with some grudge against someone else. You're facing a problem in your life, and this problem is constantly a problem, and you just can't understand, you can't get the strength to overcome. You can't come to the place that God needs you to come. You need to realize that it's the grace of God that is sufficient. 
that it will empower you to overcome it. But experiencing that grace means that as you receive, so you must also give. Freely you have received, freely give. You give in grace? Remember we talked before. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So if I'm lacking something in my life, I have to look at what I've sown. Are you experiencing grace? No. Are you sowing grace? Are you planning it? Are you forgiving even those who don't deserve to be forgiven? doesn't matter if they deserve it. The whole meaning of grace is undeserved, unearned favor. Doing that which is beyond anything that anyone else can imagine. Because Paul would say, for me, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Listen, All we need is to really understand and grasp, hold on to the grace of God and what the grace of God means in our life. And when we really understand that, it's it's so freeing. It turns you loose. It, It gives you wings. It makes you fly. It breaks the chains of bondage that hold you tight. See, that's what Paul wanted the church of Corinth to get. He wants them to get. They're piling up all these teachers because they sound good and they say nice things, but, but, but they're exalting themselves and not the Lord. It's not meeting a need in your life. What you need is the grace of God because that's what enabled me to overcome all the shortcomings in my life. The grace of God. The grace of God is sufficient. It's what's necessary. It's what we need to experience. For God shows himself strong in our weakness. Divine power is best displayed against the backdrop of human weakness. Divine power is best displayed against the backdrop of human weakness. The power of God moves much more powerfully through the life of one who is not afraid to be weak. Not afraid to say, I can't do this myself. I can't overcome on my own. The power of God working in that place will do amazing things. It will show itself to be strong in us. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. You ever get together with the guys and you start talking about all the great things you've ever done? Paul was different than that. Paul said, I'd rather boast of my infirmities. I'd rather boast in my weakness. I'd rather talk about where God was strong than where I was strong. I'd rather talk about what God did in a situation than how I overcame in that situation. We need to realize... The truth of what God wants to do. Bound in His Word. True all day long. It will never not be true. What is it? The grace of God changes everything. 
Like Paul, I knew a guy probably 17 years ago. In rebellion against the Lord. If God said left, he would go right. He did everything he could to destroy his life, to destroy his family's lives, to wipe it all out. Everything that he could do. He cheated on his wife. He was diagnosed with HIV while she was seven months pregnant with their first child. I don't know, you come up with a guy less deserving of forgiveness and grace? Sad before his wife to tell her, listen, uh, the life I chose, the rebellion I have against the Lord is going to sentence you to death, me to death, kids to death, everybody's going to die. Nobody gets out of here alive because of the road I chose. I never forget what she said. She gave me grace. Grace changes everything. Doesn't change what I did. Doesn't change who I am. I stand before you today guilty as charged. But set free by the grace of God. I will always be that person. There will never be a day when I'm not that person. That is who I am. But it's not who I am in Christ. In Christ, we're a new creation. Paul said, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the strength of God would be seen in the life and what God changes. In a life that's headed to destruction, that's going to perish, where everything is going to be lost. Who offers hope for that family? What doctor could I have gone to that would have taken the HIV away? Or made my wife healthy? Or made sure that the baby didn't have it? Who could have done any of that? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? What friend could you go to and say, give me counsel. This is who I am. What should I do? There's nowhere to go. There's one place. One place that's real. One place that's true. And one place that will change everything. And that is in the presence of Almighty God who can speak to that which does not exist as though it does. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. God who could look into my life and say, Jackie, don't deserve a second chance. But I give you one. You don't deserve the wife you married, but I'll restore your marriage. You don't deserve the family that I see in your future, but I'm going to give that to you. The grace of God changes everything. 
Folks, if I didn't understand the grace of God, I would never have changed. You could not have lined up enough psychiatrists, anybody, the wisest of the wise could come and say, I could fix him. Nobody was going to fix me. Nobody. But God. He changed it all. And now today, when I deal with my thorn in the flesh, like Paul, I can say, Oh, your grace is sufficient. You've done enough for me, Lord. The fact that I'm going to spend eternity with you, that's all I need. Does it stop me from laying my cares down before Him? No. Does it stop me about praying that God would take things out of my life? No, it doesn't stop me from praying about it. I'm not afraid to ask God for things and hear Him say no. I'm not afraid of that. Because when I hear God say no, what I really hear Him say is, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Just like it changed everything for Paul, just like it changed everything for me, it will change everything for you. But I cannot experience and understand the grace of God looking at at my life and who I am and hold judgment against another one. Can't do it. I can't. When I was 14 years old, I went and worked at a, at a place for disabled kids. Kids that have autism or cerebral palsy or a variety of different issues. And while I was at that camp working with those kids, the guy running the camp molested me. And I have to forgive him. Does he deserve it? Maybe not. Did I? Nope. Long time ago, I made peace with my demons. Kathy gets bummed sometimes, says I share too much stuff, but I'm going to be invisible. You want to know? Ask. I'll tell you. If you don't want to know, don't ask. But the point is, I had to make peace with all that junk in my life. All that stuff that we hold on to. All the grudges. All the things that keep us from experiencing everything that God has for us. And if you won't let that junk go, you'll find yourself reaching out for the commendation of men. For people saying, you know what, it's okay. You you have every right to be angry. Every right to be frustrated. Sure you do. Sure. Sure. You can have every right and go through life without the greatest gift of all. Or you can do what God says. Lay down all those things at the foot of the cross. All that stuff that happened to me happened for a purpose. Makes me who I am today. And I don't begrudge any of it. Not excited about it all. But I don't begrudge it. I see the hand of God working in my life because it always works together for my good and His glory. If I don't press into the Lord, is that true? No. 
You hear people on the news all the time saying, well, it's all going to work out. But you, if not, if you don't have Jesus Christ, if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, how's it going to work out? How's it all going to... It's the grace of God that changes it. It's in my weakness that He's strong. Without Him, it's just my weakness. Got to have Him. We got to turn to Him. We've got to receive and extend forgiveness and experience the true grace of God. You got to come face to face with who you really are, not who the mask is that you show everybody. I don't believe that. I'm not, I'm not a single person. We can all look right and holy at church, can't we? Wear our Sunday best. I didn't even wear my flip-flops today. We could come and, and show, paint whatever picture we want to paint. But when you go to bed at night and the lights go out and you're alone in the dark, you're left with who you really are. And that's the one God loves. That's the one He wants. That's the person He'll save. And he'll change. And he'll be strong in your life. All you have to do is trust him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you this morning, God. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would truly hear, perceive, receive the word that we read this morning. It's not about what other people say. It's not about how good someone can make themselves look or or lies that they can tell to, to, to rip someone else off. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about the real. What's real? Paul said, this is what's real. I was once a sinner, and now I am saved, set free in Christ. Paul would say, I was once a murderer, but now I'm saved, set free in Christ. Every one of us. We started as something else. But here we are. In the place of the real, standing before Almighty God with an opportunity to say, God, this is who I really am. And I've been hiding it and I've been dealing with all these things on my own. But I need to realize that these things that have been in my life, these events that have occurred, they are gifts. To bring me to this moment. This moment when I can say, here I am. Not hiding. Not pretending. This is me. When I can come to that moment and I can hear my Savior say, I love you. I died for you. I bore the price of the sin that has ruled in your life so that you 
could be new. No longer defined by the events of your past. No longer defined by the things that have occurred to you. But defined by the fact that the living, true, all-powerful God dwells within you. Lord God, let that be that which defines us all. It's not about what other people say, what other people think. It's about what the Word of God declares to be true. The grace of God is sufficient for me, for His strength is made perfect in my weakness. I don't have to hide that I'm weak. I have to be willing to proclaim it and receive the grace of God that sets me free. Father, as we stand before you this morning, we come at this time, Lord Jesus, in a spirit and attitude of, of worship, seeking your face. Lord God, I pray, pour out your spirit upon us. Lord God, we pray for a revival. Lord Jesus, we pray, God, that we would not be people who play church, but we'd be real. Real people who really hurt, who really weep, who really suffer, and who really are set free by the power of Christ in their life. May we experience that outpouring of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Lord God, we pray that you pour out your spirit in this place. And Lord God, as we, as we close with worship, uh, Father, as, as Fritz just come on up, brother, and we get ready to do this last worship song, as we close in worship and as, as we're still heads bowed and eyes closed, we have our prayer counselors get up and go around the room to a variety of places. And I want to encourage you as the Spirit of God moves in your life and draws you and calls you and encourages you. Any of these people standing around the room, any of us standing up front here, we, we're happy to pray with you, to, to help you, encourage you in your relationship with the Lord. So God, that you would move in a mighty way. So God, that you would touch our lives. And that maybe today, if you've never experienced it, that you would experience that grace that changes everything, that makes you new. So as we just continue this attitude of worship, Lord, we pray that you would just move in a mighty way. And as God stirs you to come for prayer, we invite you to come for prayer. And if God's not stirring you to do that, and I ask that you would pray for those that he is asking, that they have the strength to do what the Lord requires. We lay this morning before you, God. And we pray you be glorified in this place as we put our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.